don't hear the traffic, but what's the deal? Are you, did you get kicked out of church? <clears throat> no, actually, I thought, well, this, it's such a beautiful day. I came out to their, they have an enclosed playground, and the door goes right out from the side. When you come out of the sanctuary and turn left, you go in the playground. But I realized there was a lot of noise, so I was going to go back in, but the door locked behind me. It, I guess. <clears throat> so, so now I'm stuck in the playground and the door locked. But I don't understand why they don't. You know, lock people out instead of locking them in. But anyway, so here I am in the church. playground. I'm gonna have to bang on the door when I get through. Your know, church, church, uh, church would be a lot bigger if they locked people in. You're right. So, uh, so what story? What story do you have for us today, Mom? Well, uh, first I want to tell you I love you and thank you so much for the flowers for my birthday. You're welcome. You arrived a day early. Thank you very much. Um, a day early. Yes. Yes, a day early. Uh-huh. Correct. Um, I wanted to tell y'all, you know, we've been discussing the rules that we had in our house. You know, you, you always have rules when you got kids growing up. Well, I didn't mention the other rule that we had where when you first get your driver's license, um, you don't ride anybody in the car with you. Nobody gets to ride in the car with you when you first get your driver's license. Well, I got a call when I was at work because Joey took the car to school, which he was supposed to. That was fine. But apparently... Um, Joey had the youth pastor in his car, and he was parked on the opposite side of the road as the church, and I don't know, he can tell you more about it, whether he forgot to hit the brake or forward it, I don't know, but he shot straight across the road, um, and then crashed into the school secretary's car. So that was a kind of a shocker. And then to find out that his youth pastor was in the car, because as you know, you're not supposed to have anybody in the car when you have a newly new driver's license. But I will let him tell you the rest of the story, because i got to find a way to get back in the church. Okay. <laughs> love you, Mom. Okay. Thank you very much. I love you, too. All right, bye. bye. Now, that never happened. <laughs> no, it, it did happen. And uh, I did hit the secretary's car. And there was just a little bit of damage to the bumper. It was like 400 bucks. And I paid for it with my allowance for 11 years. <clears throat> so just to want to let you know. But <clears throat> the reason we've been having my mom come in with these stories, is the slideshow working or working on it? Okay. The reason we have my mom calling in with these stories, the name of the series has been, and this is the last one in the series this week, My Mother and the return of Jesus was because there was this sense because mainly because I was really never ready for her return but it seems like whenever my mom would come home from work or whatever I'd always be nervous and I'd always be scared and because you know I I wasn't quite sure if I had all my ducks in a row and so while my mom coming home from work should have been a fun and joyous thing I was always nervous in my stomach and and that kind of related and translated to how I looked at the return of Jesus for many years and uh, one of the things that uh, I learned uh, in the last 15 years or so is I had a really warped view of what the return of Jesus was supposed to be and how I, as a child of God, should look at it. And I, I was able to escape this, the bad theology that some out there call the rapture where Jesus does a half return and then later on comes as a full return. That's not good biblical theology. And I also was able to escape later the bad theology that Jesus... His return should make all Christians really nervous and give them a pit in their stomach. And we talked about the last few weeks that in reality, if you're a child of God, 
He never does a poor job of saving anyone, right? And his scripture says, He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it even to the day of salvation. And we know the scripture says, All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then in Ephesians, we remember what he says is he has created good works for us that we should basically, as the, as the original language kind of intimates, stumble into. And so the idea that we should be afraid of the Lord's return is born out of, quite frankly, a lack of faith in God's ability to save you. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read you a couple passages this morning. I don't know if we have the uh, slideshow or not. Do we or... Well, I'll just keep going. You guys let me know when it comes up. But I'm going to read this. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. Just listen to this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but even much more, you've done well in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. It's an amazing verse right there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. See, in this passage, Paul talks about the fact that when the day of the Lord comes, don't be caught grumbling and murmuring and disputing and fighting and bickering. And what does he mean by laboring in vain? It doesn't mean that you were lazy. It means that you were working for nothing. And he says, I don't want to be ashamed when the Lord returns and feel like I labored in vain. That's not one of my slides. Just make sure you guys know, because there's no words on that. So, um, And so when Paul talks about the murmuring and disputing, and then he translates it to laboring in vain, and he talks about the return of the Lord Jesus, it's quite an interesting concept. And what does Paul mean when he says, to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, as some translations say. He's talking about the idea of not only am I not laboring in vain, but I'm pouring out everything I have. It's a picture of of a type of sacrifice they had in the Old Testament, and I'll explain it some other time, but for for the sake of time today, just trust me, it's in the Old Testament, right? And so the idea is the picture is being poured out completely, emptied, totally emptied upon the sacrifice and service of growing our faith. That's what Paul says. He says, I don't want that labor to be in vain. I don't want it to be worthless. So don't murmur and fight and dispute. I'll read another passage to you in Luke. Chapter 9, 23 to 26. 
Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? If any was ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So let's go through now and let's break down this passage because what I'm going to try to leave with you today is this idea. If you really have faith that God has given you, that has saved you and transformed your heart and life and given you the ability to trust the work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness, the scripture says. If you really have embraced that, then that should give you the ability to look forward to the Lord's return. And if you can look forward to the Lord's return, as we looked at in some of those videos, kind of like with the soldiers coming home to see their kids, how that reaction was, that's how the Lord's return should be looked like. If that's the case, then I believe what will happen is you will have an uncanny ability to escape the monotonous, the ridiculous, the pathetic, and the petty. First point. Following Jesus. He says, if any man come after me, right? What does that mean anyway? You know, in the scripture, we see another passage where it says, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? Does it mean to live perfectly? No, because that's impossible. There's another bad theology out there. What it means is this. You are seeking the day of Jesus. The kingdom of God. Seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, if we live a life that is pointed toward anticipation of the day of the Lord's return, the other things in life that we think are blessings, they kind of come along naturally. Seeking the kingdom of God means that we live a life gripped in anticipation of the day of salvation. Not in misguided fear of it, but embracing it. For if we live a life like that, how is that going to adjust your agenda? How will living a life like that adjust your actions? How will living a life like that adjust your attitude? Another point that we're going to look at today, denying yourself. Now, what does he mean by deny yourself? I wrote some things down, and as you can imagine, some of them might be offensive. Does this mean living a sad, pious life without any joy? Avoiding every non-spiritual vice? Never listening to the Doors or Zeppelin or Maroon 5, but only Chris Tomlin in the Joy FM? Is that what he means by denying yourself? Does this mean making sure that you get up not at 6, but at 5.30? Because at 6, it's okay, but 5.30, it's really godly. Because at 5.30, not many people are praying. You've got a special one-on-one -on -one with Jesus right there, right? 
Is that what he means by deny yourself? Does he mean that you should wear the cheapest clothes you can find? Does it mean you should put the air conditioner at 80 in the summer? What does he mean by deny yourself? Because I'll tell you, if those are the things, I'm not doing a very good job. Last night, my air conditioner was set at 70. I know you green energy folks hate me, I know. Here's what it really means. It means that your agenda naturally goes to the back burner because you're excited about the joyous anticipation of the return of Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I know you're impressed that I know an old hymn, but I do. But the point is this, if we live a life with joyous anticipation of meeting our Savior face to face, denying ourselves becomes a natural process. Our agenda, which is the antipathy, you know, the antipathy of ourself, that's what we are. Our agenda is what we want, the things we see, the things we desire, even on a spiritual sense in a church, mind you. Those things begin to become less important as we focus on anticipating return of our dad. See, I often get caught up in my own church agenda on busy life. And I can succumb to motivations and pressures and influences, most of them selfish, which cause me to lose focus on the return of Jesus. And what begins to happen is I reject the most important agenda as a pastor, which is equipping believers to be effective in fulfilling his command, which is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And here's where you as church people can kind of fall into this, just like with me. If we are seeking ministries, for example, in a church to help fulfill our desires or our needs or solve our life problems, we have put down our cross. We haven't picked it up. We've put it down and we have picked up our own agenda. We have become self-seekers and not kingdom seekers. And none of those things that we really desire will be added. We'll be grasping at air the whole time and we'll never see the satisfaction. You see Christians live a life that's empty and unsatisfied and always in drama. It's because they're not seeking the kingdom. They're seeking their own agenda. These things that we desire become elusive carrots. And as a matter of fact, they're like carrots at the end of a stick used as bait to steer us away from what will bring us real joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. You know, we get so good at this, guys, that we even figure out ways to manipulate ourselves into integrating our agenda into things that we consider maybe, quote-unquote, a godly life. Right? 
We get so good at pursuing our agenda, we come up with ways of expressing it and saying it and promoting it that it seems like it's a godly thing. And if people oppose our agenda, they're of Satan. Well, maybe not Satan, but just not very smart. Don't we get good at that as Christians? Well, I think this is the way it should be done in the church. This is the way it would benefit me. And so we begin to manipulate our agenda into a godly thing. And that's what James talks about when he says, where do wars and fighting come from among you? Don't they come because you try to fulfill your own desires and your desires conflict with others? Which brings us to our next point. Lose it to find it? I mean, that sounds ridiculous. I mean, I try that with my car keys all the time. (laughs) Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? See, the sad thing is, when we focus on our personal wants, our personal preferences and needs, it only creates a greater appetite for those things. And frankly, it often ends in crisis because it's never fulfilled. We slip into the danger of trying to save our own life. And what that really means is save and preserve our agenda. Thus, we run the risk of losing it. Remember what we read in Philippians 2.14 this morning? I'm just going to read it to you again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And in James 4.1, we did this huge series on James and we talked about it. I'll read it again. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members? He's talking to Christians here. How can we say we're seeking the kingdom of God if it creates conflict among our family? James says the fighting comes from because we're trying to fulfill our own desires. So either we're super godly and James is wrong, or our agenda has manipulated its way into what we think is seeking the kingdom of God. See, that kind of inreach in the church is a bottomless pit. If a church is spending its time trying to fulfill the desires and the pleasures and the quote-unquote godly passions of its people and not looking toward the return of Jesus, it's a bottomless pit. The church will waste hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. I mean tons of money with staff and buildings and programs, all that kind of stuff. Those things are a pursuit of your own life. We cannot pursue those things while at the same time laying down our life for his sake. Because those things are diametrically opposed. And I wrote a question here in my notes. How much does your church have to work to keep you happy? Think about it for a minute, guys. How hard does Church of the Palms have to work? How hard does the garden have to work? How hard do I have to work, Bruce, the deacons? How hard do they have to work to keep you happy? 
Uh-oh, preacher, you stopped preaching. You done gone to meddling now. <laughs> Facing shame. Uh, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let me explain it this way. When God saved you, he didn't call you to emotional safety or comfort. See, ministry or a life motivated primarily by that desire will result in a life void of joyous anticipation and return of our Savior. Could you imagine how those kids would have felt or have been acting if they knew their dad was on the way, those videos we showed the last two weeks, if they knew their dad was just around the corner, just outside the room, he's going to be here any second, you love him, he hasn't been around, he's been gone, he's been fighting for you in a foreign land, he's right around the corner, would they be sitting calmly in their chairs? Would they be fighting over who spilt the chocolate milk? Or would they be stirred to action? Would they be in fear? Or would they be filled with just unbelievable excitement? Does that make sense? See, that's what Jesus meant by laying down your own life or your own agenda. It means putting your needs and desires on the back burner for the cause of Christ's coming kingdom and the anticipation of his return. Nothing brings a child of God more satisfaction and more joy than living a life that it's in anticipation of that. Because you know what happens when you do? Psalm 51, I preached this here once. For then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Fighting over the color of the carpet in the auditorium is the antithesis of that. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. Live in him, not in your own agenda, so that when he appears, you have confidence. That's right. That is my dad. I'm going to go hug him. Or will Jesus come around the corner? I don't think I know that guy. Should I hug him? I don't know if he's my dad. Share a couple things that I wrote down from my journal. As a pastor, I get so busy doing ministry, far too often the second coming of Jesus is not even a thought in my mind. Most of the time I am thinking about the next sermon, the next worship service. I'm drawn to the agenda for the next ministry team meeting or the next song I might play on my guitar. I find myself consumed with the massive to-do list that comes from being a pastor. As a child of God, the return of Jesus should be the number one motivation for everything that I do. I should be pointed toward that day with great hope and joy and anticipation, not fear and anxiety. I should be consumed by the thought of that moment when I finally get to run to his arms and shed tears of relief and joy as I see him face to face. See, guys, we get so caught up in church debates 
agendas, personal devotion time, or spiritual and family troubles that before we know it, we go weeks, maybe even months, without being driven by the one ultimate motivation for life and ministry that really brings us to where we're supposed to be, which is the return of Jesus. I want to encourage and challenge you today to do something. Envision in your mind the joyous scene of that inevitable future face-to-face when you get to meet your Savior. Start there and work your way back to where you are now. What motivations and habits would change in your life as you live in anticipation of that reunion? We got that clip. We can run that real quick. You guys remember the, the images from the videos, right? And there was one that I wanted to play again without the sound, right? Just so I can talk. You remember this? The girl says, my daddy's serving in Iraq right now. And, uh, you know, he's going to be... She didn't know that he was there in town. And then she shares that. And you see up there, it says, no, he isn't. Everybody knows what's getting ready to happen to her, but she doesn't. And she's there in class, right? You remember this look on her face? Remember that? Remember that? And remember what happens next? She's crying. That's not sadness. That's not shame. That's incredible joy. And she runs. All right, pause it. That is the picture of the Lord's return. That I want to motivate you to get rid of the, the mundane, the monotonous, the petty, the stupid, the murmuring and debating about the color of the carpet or the color of the walls or what ministry program needs to be started to make sure your kids get what they need. But be motivated by seeking first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all the other things will be added to you. It's amazing how good the color of the room becomes when you don't focus on it. It's amazing how good the church becomes when you're finding out how to serve and not be served. It's amazing how good spiritual life is when you're focused on the return of Jesus and not your own agenda. The last slide, we'll just go to it and then we're going to turn it over to the band, but the last slide, if we can bring it up. If you knew your dad was just around the corner, what are some of the ways your agenda, be it spiritual or otherwise, would change? For me... I can't wait to see him come around the corner. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And because of that, I'm not going to worry about the petty stuff anymore. 